Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Alice Su, The Economist Senior China Correspondent based in Taipei. And I'm here with my co-host, David Rennie, The Economist's Beijing bureau chief. For decades, China's rulers have staked their claim to rule on economic growth. Now, that focus on prosperity is changing. Today, we're asking, what are the party's new economic goals? And why are China's leaders changing direction? This is Drum Tower. From The Economist. David, hello. Happy two sessions week. How's it going? Well, as you remember from when you were here, Alice, you know, even if you don't pay attention to a single second of the gripping uh, (laughs) events of the parliamentary session of the year, if you live in Beijing, you can't miss it Mm. because normally you have ridiculously tight security. You have armed police in all the metro stations. You have grannies in kind of smart anoraks guarding every street to make sure nobody rebels. And then you also should get, as part of the deal, Beautiful blue skies. But weirdly, it's been really smoggy. So everyone's speculating this is because Mm. they're going for economic growth after COVID. And so we've had lots and lots of smog, but the the crazy security is there. Mm, Yeah, I have to say I'm not particularly nostalgic for the two sessions because, I mean, they are a big political event. And I think every China correspondent in the world has been spending their entire week the same way, which is reading the work report, watching these speeches. But I also just remember the two sessions as a time when the internet is slow and there's high security, as you said, and you can't really do anything else because everywhere in China is on high alert because they cannot have any problems happen at this time. So I oftentimes was just kind of waiting for it to be over. But, you know, this year is actually quite interesting, right? There have been a lot of big announcements being made. That's right. I mean, this is the first annual session of parliament where Xi Jinping has his entire top team of loyalists in place. And so you have to assume that this is his vision of China being endorsed by these thousands of delegates whose job is to kind of lift that stamp. Although our producers have told us we're not allowed to call it a rubber stamp parliament because it's a cliche, but it is a stamp made of rubber that they (laughs) apply more or less to every vote. So, you know, what's interesting about the National People's Congress, it's not this suspenseful moment for reporters where you're on the edge of your chair wondering which way is the vote going to go because the vote is going to go in favor of what the party has already decided. But the NPC is this moment when the party unveils its policy direction and it confirms the new leadership. That's right. And of course, Alice, you know, this meeting of parliament is about the ministers and the state council. The party is always there behind. But this was about... The government, and of course, that means fundamentally economic policy and planning. And this is a really interesting meeting because it's the end of the pandemic. And during the pandemic, so much was disrupted that we didn't really understand the economic trend lines. But now we can see the direction that's being set from the top. And the change that we could hear is that 
instead of only talking about getting richer, getting more prosperous, there was that doomy dark talk of a world of threats and dangers that we heard at the party congress last autumn. And it's all blending in together. So now Xi Jinping's first big speech about the economy to parliament was all about we need to be strong and self-reliant in a world of dangers and threats. So our colleague, Simon Cox, who is The Economist's China economics editor, is here with us today. He's going to help us understand this move from a prosperity economy to what some people are calling a national greatness economy. Simon, hello. Welcome to Drum Tower. Hi, thanks for having me. Simon, you're currently in Hong Kong. How is it there? Are people following the NPC? A little bit, especially as it relates to Hong Kong. And people are also enjoying the fact that they just lifted the mask mandate here. So oh. slowly but surely, masks are, are coming off. It's nice to have the option to take them off, especially if, like me, you wear glasses and you've had to sort of endure fogging up lenses for the last uh, couple of years. <laughs> yes, I've had that problem too. So Simon, there's this great phrase about shifting from the prosperity economy to the national greatness economy. What does that mean? And what are people hearing at this annual meeting of the legislature to suggest that that is the plan? If you take a big step back, I used to write about lots of developing economies. And it would be quite common for an emerging economy that reached a certain stage of development to start worrying about other things than per capita GDP, right? More than just material wealth. You'd worry about education, quality of life, the environment. Uh, and China's been through all that. But now it also seems to have this idea that it's willing to sacrifice a certain amount of prosperity in order to win resilience, self-reliance, in order to harden itself against what it sees as a hostile external environment. A number of leading thinkers in China's government have been talking about this for a while. They've talked about the old model, which was based on big in, big out. The idea that you could import lots of commodities and export lots of manufacturers, and that both of those markets would be reasonably secure and reliable. But for the last few years, there have been doubts raised about that, both because of you know, the financial crisis back in 2008, also the trade war that Trump launched, and now we have this much more explicit attempt by the US to make use of certain chokehold industries and you know, make sure that, that China doesn't get a hold of some of the leading edge technologies. And so China's trying to react to that and build a certain amount of self-reliance in response. And we're going to talk about the high-tech chip wars in a moment. But I was really struck by the way that Xi Jinping kind of went back to basics, right? That We have to safeguard our rice bowls to have enough food to eat. And we have to build up kind of a manufacturing sector because as a country with 1.4 billion people, at this phrase, we have to rely on ourselves. We cannot rely on international markets to save us. It's an amazingly doomy view. So I was so struck by this that I called up a think tanker in New York, a Chinese think tanker called Jing Qian. And he is the co-founder and the managing director of the Asia Society Policy Institute's Center for China Analysis. And I'd seen this really smart briefing note that he'd written just before the parliamentary session began that talked about watch out for signs that the Chinese economy is being securitized. That's a bit of an ugly word. But I think that Jing Chen is onto something important about the message that Xi Jinping wants to send. If the worst happened, what China needs to prevent internal instability, if you will, then one is food. As you saw the Chinese history, scarcity of food is normally what triggered massive social unrest, which led to the dynasty change. I think this is how we think. So when I hear that and I hear Jing Tian talking about if the worst should happen, I mean, my immediate question is, what is the worst that could happen? Is it war? Is it 
massive social unrest, as he refers to. But Simon, I'm curious, you know, what do you make of this? You know, this kind of very retro emphasis on just providing the basics. Is this a response to a hostile external environment or is this a reflection of Xi Jinping's personal priorities? I think it's primarily a response to the external environment. The emphasis on food security was also there last year, which was immediately in the wake of the invasion of Ukraine, when wheat prices and commodity prices shot up. And then the emphasis on manufacturing has been there for a couple of years as well. Uh, This idea that we don't want our best talents being diverted into frivolities. We want to maintain a core competence in hard tech, in manufacturing the basics, and also a bit more than the basics, things that uh, a great power needs and not lose ourselves in e-commerce and TikTok videos. And it's so interesting that this is a reminder that that analysis that was so kind of common for the last 30 years of reform and opening, that that's their source of legitimacy. And of course, we see that actually the Communist Party is still there and is focused on really fundamental questions of security, keeping their countries safe, and that just rising living standards isn't actually the end. It's just the means to national security. And Jing Qian argues that you can hear the language changing in very dramatic ways to shift towards security. Security goes ahead of development. What mentioned in the Walker Report include global security, national security, economic security, social security, food security, energy security, security in development, job security, security of operation of a market entity, security for basic living needs, security in stable industry and supply chains, security of normal function of local governments. So many layers of security, and you can see the grand securitization of Chinese party state entities. So, you know, we've spoken before on this podcast about Xi Jinping's overwhelming focus on security as his theme of governance, if you will. But I'm also aware that, at least in the Chinese narrative, it's necessary for China to pursue security in this way because China is under threat. And actually, at the MPC this week, Xi Jinping directly pointed out America and said, you know, the U.S. is surrounding us and they're targeting us. And David and Simon, I know that you two have different views on why exactly China is making the shift to a security-focused economy. And I'd like to hear both of you in turn. So, Simon, let's start with you. So clearly, the American efforts to curtail China's access to semiconductors and certain key technologies, it's immensely provocative and it's clearly uh, galvanized China's leadership. We saw the Trump administration do it a little bit with companies like Huawei and ZTE. With the Biden administration, it's been much more concerted and systematic with this focus on high-end chips and also trying to sort of rally allies to join the cause and also saying that you, know, you can't even sell items that were made with US equipment to China. Now, that's remarkable in many ways. You can sort of see the US rationale for it, but you can't really be surprised that China would respond in this way, which is to focus more on trying to develop their own answers to these foreign technologies that they no longer can guarantee access to. So Simon, you're clearly right that the latest export controls are dramatically more aggressive and potentially effective than anything we've seen before in terms of controlling things like semiconductors. I guess the problem I have with this is that it sounds like a really selective story. Before I was back in Beijing for this posting, I was in Washington for six years. And so I was there for the second term of Obama. And President Obama was basically as good an American president as China was going to get. He wanted to do things about climate change. Let's work together on things like pandemics, 
during Obama's presidency, what did we hear from China? America's trying to contain us. We need self-reliance. 2015, what do they roll out? A gigantic made in China in 2025 industrial plan, which is all about not being dependent on foreign chokehold technologies. So I do agree with you that America's being very aggressive right now. But I think China is conveniently forgetting that it was almost entirely as paranoid and certainly absolutely focused on self-reliance when they had a completely different president in the White House. So I think this is Xi Jinping's worldview. And you can read him saying very, very similar things way back to the first time he took office a decade ago. Yeah, one of the tragedies, of course, is that America has confirmed China's worldview. America has confirmed the fact that it does want to contain China, which obviously China has always believed, and now it feels justified in that belief. It's a very striking thing to say to a country that we're going to try and limit your technological development in this way. I feel very ambivalent about it. I don't particularly want China dominating the industries of the future either. But what's very striking about the controls as they're conceived, as, insofar as we understand them, is that they're not merely trying to maintain America's edge. So they're not merely trying to say that there will always be a gap between America and China. They're trying to hold China to an absolute ceiling of technological development. Now, at the moment, the chips that they're curtailing access to are extremely high-end. They don't have a big economic impact because most industries don't use them very intensively. But one thing we know, obviously, about technology is that today's high-end chips become tomorrow's mainstays, tomorrow's workhorses. And it's not completely clear to me that America's going to relax the controls when that day arrives. So it's not surprising to me either that China has therefore mounted this quite concerted effort to try and work around these controls if it can. And look, this is the thing about a vicious circle, right? And of course, China is going to try and escape these controls. But I think to try and explain how the Americans see this, which is why would we let China make the People's Liberation Army stronger and more capable of doing things that we don't want, like invade Taiwan, using American technology or American money? Again, I think back to my time covering the Obama administration in DC, you saw them trying these really targeted export controls. So I think it was 2015, they said, you know, we're worried about the PLA building supercomputers uh, that could really help them get an edge in some very advanced uh, sort of weapons. And so we're going to tell an American company, Intel, that they can't sell the most advanced chips so that the PLA can make these supercomputers. And what happened was because of civil military fusion, this big Chinese government idea of basically blurring all the lines between the, the military and civilian companies and harnessing everyone to this grand national endeavor, those chips that were supposedly not allowed to go anywhere near a PLA university or a supercomputer, China got them anyway. And so I think what you're seeing from the Biden administration is now, you know what, if you are going to make it impossible for us to only target military end users, then you leave us with no choice uh, but to block all of this. And, and you're right, Simon, it is extremely aggressive. But I think the alternative uh, from the American perspective is naively continuing to allow the PLA to build weapons that can kill Americans and invade Taiwan with American chips. And they don't see why America would do that. I understand both of your arguments. And I really think it comes down to the question of how much you trust the Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party, right? Because it is true that America is being very aggressive and in some ways unfair, but it depends on what the American government thinks the Chinese government is going to do with that technology. And this is kind of a debate I've seen playing out quite a lot, even here in Taiwan, right, which is the front line of a potential war. Some people are really happy seeing the export controls, seeing America take a hard line because they feel like China can't be trusted with that hard tech advantage. The PLA is going to come and attack. And then there are some other people who are very cynical who are saying, 
it's not really about protecting Taiwan and it's not really about values or democracy or liberalism. It's just that America likes being number one and they're pissed off and they see that China might get to the number one spot and they want to stop them. Well, in a similar way, uh, the mutual dependence of China and America is in many ways their best guarantee of security. The other thing I would say is that you know there are two things at work here. One is China's capacity, its ability to inflict pain, harm, disruption. And the other is its willingness to do so. And frankly, you know, China's already a hugely powerful country capable of hurting the world in all sorts of ways if it really wanted to, if it were reckless. And so I think its willingness to do that is a much more important variable than its ability to do it. So if limiting China's ability to do some of these technologically sophisticated military efforts so turns China against stability, against geopolitical order as it is, then I think you've actually undermined security rather than enhancing it. But don't you think China's already demonstrated its willingness to use economic dependence on it to further its own aims? Isn't that why America and its allies have taken this much more hardline stance on China in recent years? I just think you know, if the two economies did decouple, especially if China were able to decouple from Taiwan, I don't think anyone's safer as a result. Because then, you know, the damage to you from attacking the other is much less. So we've had this discussion about why China is making this move towards a more securitized economy or an economy of national greatness. But let's turn to the how of how China is making this transition. Simon, what have you been observing this week from the NPC in terms of the reforms that have been announced that will actually make this economy of national greatness happen? Yeah, so they've announced a number of changes to uh, the way they organize the state. In particular, they've given great prominence to the Ministry of Science and Technology to really, I think, galvanize that ministry to lead this effort towards self-sufficiency, both by giving it more power, but also taking away some responsibilities that might otherwise distract it. On the long lists of things that might affect their security risks, they're worried about uh, financial risks. And so they've revamped the financial regulatory structure to make it more coordinated as well. And they've increased scrutiny of local government finances, which again is the source of potential trouble and social unrest. And Simon, to focus on the crown jewel of high tech, these kind of very high end chips, these semiconductors, how might China pull off its plan to secure the highest end semiconductors, even if it can't get access to American chips? I think it's going to be really difficult. This isn't the sort of thing that happens to brute force. Uh, these are the sort of cultures, I guess, of innovation develop over a long period of time. Even America is struggling to replicate what Taiwan has succeeded in doing. So I think that at the moment, we can have a certain level of comfort that despite the huge priority the government's placing on it, despite the resources at its disposal, it's finding it alarmingly difficult. And in some ways, the, the money that they throw at the problem can even make things worse. It can make it so that you know, people try and win over a subsidy rather than try and break difficult problems. But I would also say that because of the export controls, now there are corporate customers in China who are really very interested in buying from local suppliers who would previously not have given them a second thought because they knew they could get better chips from outside the country. So we learn a lot from our customers. That's one of the lessons of economic development is that access to sophisticated customers is one of the ways you learn. And what these export controls have done is force China's most sophisticated customers to teach the local suppliers what they need to know to serve their needs. So that could potentially benefit China. And in a moment, we'll look at what all of this means for the one big question we are hearing here and around the world. 
Is China back open for business? And Simon, listeners can read your full report on the MPC and the work report on The Economist website. But is there anything else you've enjoyed reading in The Economist recently? Oh, sure. There's a lovely science and technology piece on the origins of wine. And relatedly, there was a piece in the finance section about the Chinese Communist Party's crackdown on hedonistic bankers who have been accused of financial elitism, worship of wealth and reverence for the West. And that sounds like we should have a profits warning for several Bordeaux Chateau. And of course, the most interesting thing I read this week, and I'm not just saying this to be polite, is Alice's special report on Taiwan. It's a really fantastic deep dive from the ground in Taiwan, which is often just kind of treated as a kind of abstract place that's at the centre of this geopolitical storm. But you brought it to life and I really, really recommend it. Thank you, David. I hope more people will read it. But in order to read that report and the one Simon mentioned and everything else in The Economist, you will need to be a subscriber. Luckily, we have a special introductory offer just for listeners, which you can find at economist.com slash drum offer. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to Drum Tower. We've just been discussing how and why China's leaders are reshaping the country's economy. And this leads us to the next big question that I think is on a lot of people's minds, which is, is China back open for business? Certainly Chinese officials and diplomats have been going around saying that it is, but is it that simple? How does this new shift of focus from prosperity to security change the environment in China? Simon, what do you think? I think China is back open for business. I would say uh, the more difficult question is whether foreign companies are back open to doing business with China. Certainly companies that work in sensitive fields, high-tech fields, I think have a lot of circumspection. And also, I suppose their Chinese customers must wonder now whether those uh, companies are reliable suppliers, especially if they're American. They may wonder if the American suppliers will be hit by sanctions and restrictions that prevent them serving Chinese customers. Certainly any company that is willing to bring their technology and their expertise to China, I think will be welcomed at the moment. In addition to all the things that were in the work report at the National People's Congress, there was one thing that wasn't in it, which was the phrase common prosperity, which has scared many investors and entrepreneurs in China. This is an initiative to narrow wealth inequalities in China that became synonymous essentially with billionaire bashing. And the fact that that wasn't given high prominence would be in some reassurance to foreign investors. I suppose the longer term question is, you know, if the economy picks up again, if China feels confident again, will some of the more ideological and less business friendly tropes we've seen in recent years come back? And of course, there's always a gap between China's external messaging and its domestic messaging. And that's why I thought Jing Qian from the Asia Society had this really kind of neat way to measure and judge whether China's economy is back and is really on an open trajectory. He offered like four different groups to think about. And they all need to feel confident if the Chinese economy is really going to take off again. One is that whether the local government will be incentivized again to develop the economy. 
because they are the key driver of the China's economic miracle. The second one is whether the private entrepreneurs will be confident again to invest their capital. And the third one is whether the average Chinese household will feel safe enough to consume more. And the fourth one is whether the international circulation will be strong enough to drive the so-called new circulation. Yeah, I think that's a really useful breakdown of the four different groups. Could you explain first what is international circulation? Essentially, it's international trade. And I think the reason it's being highlighted is that you know, the global economy is in a difficult spot right now. And actually, you know, the big paradox in China is that just as they open up to people flows, exports are shrinking. Whereas during the pandemic, when they were closed to people flows, exports were booming. So I think they are worried about whether the global economy will help to support the recovery. And actually, you know, many people outside China are hoping that Chinese imports will give a timely boost to demand at this difficult time. The question about consumers is also very interesting because although consumer incomes were hit during the pandemic, spending declined even more. So by some measures, there's quite a large amount of excess savings that you know, some people say counts as ammunition or dry powder that could potentially be either invested in the stock market or potentially spent. And at the moment, we don't really see huge signs that consumer confidence has bounced back. Jingqiu mentioned a really interesting detail, that foreign direct investment. The headline numbers still look really good, but actually it's often a very small number of the same companies that have already built huge factories, invested billions of dollars in China, just kind of adding a few more bits of production capacity in China. But there is not a vast number of companies as yet beating on the door. And that raises it was like a philosophical question. If you were a foreign investor thinking about either putting the next billion into China or maybe entering the China market in a big way for the first time, what do you hear when you hear Xi Jinping saying that self-reliance and national security, the priorities? Simon, what do you hear when you talk to analysts and businesses about that kind of foreign confidence? Yeah, it took a massive hit during COVID. There's no doubt about it. And also with the geopolitical souring. And I think also just the erratic policymaking during the zero COVID regime also shattered a certain amount of confidence. So you can see that very much in surveys. Actually, investment flows take a bit longer. With foreign direct investment figures, you're absolutely right that insofar as there's been strength, it's been through retained earnings. So companies that are already in China plowing their profits back into China. But even there, that tailed off towards the end of last year. So it'd be interesting to see if that picks up uh, now that the COVID controls have been lifted. I think that's still a very much open question. And Simon, what is your sense of what the incentives are for local officials on the ground now? Are they still being measured by how much growth they can bring to their provinces, for example? Well, I think there's a broader array now of targets, and I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of them are quite confused about where the priorities should lie. Xi Jinping always talks about things in a very two-handed way. It's always progress and stability. And so, you know, if you're a local government trying to read the tea leaves, it must be tremendously difficult. At least the analysts I've read say that there was a sort of happier competition in the past where local governments did vie with each other. They did experiment, but that didn't result in financial excess because actually their financial resources were very tightly controlled. And then that broke down when local governments were able to borrow fairly freely through local government financing vehicles. And so maybe, you know, the optimistic take would be that this reorganization of local government finance regulation, this effort to bring that under more scrutiny, will get you back to the good kind of competition that didn't run amok. Yeah, that's very interesting because when we, and I think when a lot of China analysts talk about the changes that are coming, there's a lot of anxiety about the party asserting more control over the state. And I think sometimes there's an assumption that that inevitably will mean 
economic ruin. It will mean ideology trumping rational policymaking. Do you worry about that? But I do think with local governments, things perhaps became too lax. And so you know, one can hope that the closer financial scrutiny will, will bring some benefits. But I think you know, bringing things under tighter party control is a sort of step backwards, given a lot of the emphasis in more recent decades on institutionalizing Chinese governance. And mixed messages don't help, do they? I mean, if you're telling people that, as you say, Simon, that they have to have growth, but they must also have stability. And we also know that after zero COVID, a lot of local governments are basically stony broke because they spent so much money on nucleic acid tests for millions of people. You can see a lot of officials just doing nothing because when you're getting contradictory messages from the big guy at the top in China, the safest thing to do is to just keep your head down and do as little as possible so you don't make a mistake. So Simon, thank you so much for joining us and for lending us your expertise. And we look forward to having you on again soon because the economy is going to be such a big part of the story in 2023. Uh, well, thanks for having me. So David, we have just been discussing this shift from a prosperity economy to a security economy. And we've talked about what it means for businesses, for local governments. But what does this transition mean for ordinary people living in China? Look, I think that's the core question, because we're talking about the party's legitimacy, right? Do they have kind of broad consent? Back after the party congress last October, I wrote a column about the China dream, Xi Jinping's signature slogans about helping people kind of live in a country that is going to achieve great national rejuvenation by the middle of the century. That that's subtly changing, that if you can talk about a social contract in a country which doesn't have that many freedoms like China, the Chinese dream used to be this country is going to get richer, it's going to get more prosperous. And that kind of economic miracle of the last 30 years was built on the back of millions and millions of individual choices and aspirations. All of those individual decisions, I think, are now being kind of overshadowed by that talk of the national greatest economy. And I think that there's a sense that the Chinese dream is now a lot more collective. Look at all the decisions that Xi Jinping has taken in the sake of social stability the last couple of years, you know, banning those after-school English lessons, reigning in the property sector, reigning in the big internet platform companies because the frivolity is not what he wants. It's not announcing a wartime mobilization, but there is that sense of mobilization. So that is a change in the social contract. And it's really hard to know how the Chinese public will take that. What's your hunch knowing China as well as you do, Alice? I remember being in Beijing for the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party and hearing Xi Jinping give this big speech. And one of the themes that you see repeated in Xi Jinping thought is this idea that China stood up during the Mao era, just and then in the Deng Xiaoping era, China got rich, right? And then in the Xi Jinping era, China is supposed to China is supposed to become strong. So I was thinking, you know, like last week when we talked about Li Keqiang, I think my final closing thought was, you know, I'm worried that was China going backwards because the party is asserting more control over the state. But at the same time, it's not that Xi wants to take China back to the Mao era, right? He doesn't want to get rid of the market economy, but it's that he wants to focus all these energies and entrepreneurship, innovation, and use it all for national strength. Even when you look at who was present at the NPC, it's quite illuminating, right, that some of the top internet entrepreneurs were not invited. And instead, you saw people who are working in key technology areas like AI and semiconductors. And I think what you're seeing now is this message that in the past, 
yeah, it's great if you want to get rich and start a great company. That's part of the China dream. But now people are being told, okay, that is not the China dream. That's your personal dream. And it's a little bit selfish, actually. You shouldn't be out there trying to get rich. If you're getting rich, it should be in service of making China strong. And the party is going to tell you what makes China strong. And so I think for individuals, a lot of people in China are really patriotic and maybe get excited about that idea. But I think also there are a lot of free-thinking, more liberal individuals who also see something that you lose in that transition. And it's not only, you know, we talk a lot about civil rights and free speech and so on and protesting, but it's also kind of a loss of this freedom to define yourself and to say, you know, I have my own dream and I want to start some company that is not going to serve hard power, but that's no longer seen as something glorious and endorsed by the state. Alice, you're so right that it's not about a return to kind of the pure Mao days and kind of ditching business. But I think it's the idea that it's capitalism plus party mobilization and business is welcome to play its role in that. Outside companies are welcome to play their role in that as long as they fit into the plan of making China secure in a very dangerous world. And it's a big bet that you can have control, but also dynamism and innovation in the same economy. And I think we're at the beginning of a giant experiment. I totally agree with you. And I think it's valid to say China needs better financial regulation and it needs reforms, right? But what I see is that there's two different ways to enact those reforms, right? You can say we need better regulation and we need, say, rule of law. We need more transparency. That's what's going to help us to grow without all these problems of recklessness and corruption that China has struggled with. But what the Chinese government is doing is saying, actually, no, we don't need more rule of law, we need more supervision and we need this top-down discipline and we need more party power. And that's the way we're going to do it. And I think that's the experiment that's about to play out. It'll also be interesting for us to watch after the MPC, the other part of the reforms that haven't yet been announced, right? Because so far we've only seen the state reforms, but we've yet to see the party reforms. And that's where we'll really see how much power the party is taking and what that's going to look like. And of course, Alice, a more self-reliant China, if, as Simon says, that's less focus on getting as much stuff into China and out of China in terms of trade, that also raises questions about how we engage with China. Because trade wasn't just kind of about money. It was about people getting to know others. It was about exchanges, about students, tourists coming in and out. And I think as China reopens, we have to hope that some of that comes back too. If you want to get in touch with us about China's economy or anything else, you can send an email to drum at economist.com. And thank you for listening to Drum Time. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alicia Burrell and Barkley Bram produced this episode. Our sound engineers are Ting Lee Lim and Nicola Rofast. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. <laughs>